pray for God's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, we turn to you now and pray that you would rain down your Holy Spirit upon us so that our hearts would be fertile ground to receive your word. We know that it is truth, and by the truth we are set free from everything that would bind us and lead us into dark paths. And so we pray by your grace that you would work within us a real desire to know your scriptures and to live by them. For the glory of our Savior, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, you can turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. And you'll find that on page 978 and 979 of the Pew Bible. We've been going through Ephesians uh, at a fairly steady rate. And now that we've come to this section on marriage, I wanted for us to pause for a few weeks and look at several themes that we find in God's Word about marriage. A bit of a topical series here within the series on Ephesians. And last week we started with God's design for marriage. And His design is that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. So that what's going on there is both a leaving and a joining. We're to leave behind every authority over us previously. We're to leave our parents behind and seek to be joined to our spouse. And we looked at some things that take place in the marriage that are unhealthy when we don't fully leave and we're not fully joined to our spouse. And one of the things that we didn't have time to say is that what this is is really a covenant bond between a husband and a wife. It's a promise covenant is based on a promise. I will love you today, tomorrow, the next day, and for the rest of my life. It's a promise of future love. In fact, the words used in Hebrew for leave and for hold fast are words that are often used by God in terms of His covenant relationship with His people. That His people are never to leave or forsake Him. That He never leaves nor forsakes His people. That we're to hold fast or to be joined together with him and that that's what he does with his people and so what is going on in Genesis chapter 2 which Paul quotes here in terms of leaving and joining is describing a covenant relationship which is a mirror of the gospel itself because the son left the father and came and was joined to his bride the church well for the in the interest of time I'm only going to read uh, Paul's quotation of Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, which you find in Ephesians 5.31, where he says here, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And today we're talking about the purpose of marriage being one flesh. I uh, may have told this story before, but after college I had a roommate who was dating someone, but he spent most of his time on the phone in the evenings with this girl's best friend. And after a number of months of this, I began to ask him, so when are you going to date and marry Sarah? I always change the names, by the way, to protect the innocent and the guilty. Uh, so when are you going to date and, and marry this girl? And he looked at me sort of oddly and said, well, she's, she's my best friend. She's not my girlfriend. And as soon as the words came out of his mouth, he started looking at me a little bit differently and realized maybe there's something to that. 
Of course, today they're married and have several children together. What he realized is that you end up, or you should end up, marrying your best friend. People get married for all sorts of reasons. They get married sometimes because it's convenient. They get married because they want to get out of the house. They get married for money. They get married because of a a, a brief time of romance and excitement. They get married for all types of reasons. The Bible says the main reason to get married is because you want to be one flesh, best friends with this person. That's how God describes it. One flesh, a sense of oneness. That's what Paul talks about here. And uh, he says that the result of this leaving and holding fast is this one flesh. The primary person, uh, purpose that God gives for marriage. Now in Western culture today, individualism is the way in which people often look at life. We like our privacy. We build privacy fences around our yard that are six feet tall and nobody can see over, right? We want people to sit a little bit further away from us so that we have our privacy. We don't want people to be involved in our lives too much so that they know too much about us. But the Bible is all about oneness. And you see it all throughout the Scriptures. Certainly there's the oneness that God has among Himself. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who are intimately tied together, bound together from all of eternity and to all of eternity. There's Jesus being bound or one with His church. And He says, not only am I one with my church, but my people are one with one another because they're all part of the same body. And husbands and wives, in a similar fashion, are one together. Earlier in this passage, Paul says in verse 28, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. He's talking about this sense of a mystical oneness that we have with one another, not just in terms of the body, the people of God, but even as husbands and wives being bound together and being one. And so God has designed marriage to be this exclusive, permanent, covenantal bond between one man and one woman for the purpose of them being joined together and being one. Now, that doesn't mean that your individualism goes away. It doesn't mean that you cease to be an individual at all. It's sort of like if you've seen those wooden puzzle pieces that are carved by hand and you find them in novelty stores. You can take them apart and every part is his own individual piece. But when you begin to put them together, they make a whole new reality. And that's what God does. You don't cease to be an individual, but when you're put together with your spouse, you become together a whole new reality, something altogether different. And God tells us why he did this. If we were to go back to Genesis chapter 2, we see where Paul quoted from. Beginning reading in verse 18, it says, Then the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. And you remember that this is the first time in history that God says, Something is not good about my creation. He says, I will make a helper fit for him. So it's not good for the man to be alone. And if you've seen a bachelor's apartment, you know that it's not good for a man to be alone. 
There are things that look like science projects. He can't quite find things because they're lost under the piles. It's not good for a man to be alone. And so he says, I will make a helper fit for him. In other words, one who is opposite, according to the opposite of him. She's like a puzzle piece that fits together with him. And what Adam says here, after he looks at these animals that God has created, and by the way, I think the animals are probably very excited that God ended up making Eve as Adam looks at each one of them and names them and realizes this one's not like me, this one's not like me. But finally, there is one like him. And he wakes up having been put to sleep by God and says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. In other words, she's a part of me. She is who I am and I am who she is. A sense of intimacy and oneness there. Marriage is God's remedy for loneliness. Marriage is God's remedy for loneliness. It's not good that the man should be alone. Adam felt incomplete because he was incomplete. He was made in such a way that he would be completed by his spouse, by Eve. That's why we often feel a little bit like a life is out of joint when our spouse is out of town. Things don't feel right. We're not sure exactly what we ought to be doing. Why? Because we've been joined together. And when we're apart, it doesn't feel right because we're made to fit with one another. And so God has made us as relational creatures to enjoy this kind of oneness, this kind of intimacy. People don't say on their deathbed, I wish I would have spent more time at the office. No, they say on their deathbed, I wish I would have spent more time with my children. I wish I would have spent more time with my wife. It's because we're made as relational creatures to be with other people. Now, people can build marriages on all kinds of things, as I mentioned uh, before. But all those things, whether it's romance, whether it's sexual attraction, whether it's uh, children, whether it's money, financial stability, whatever it is, those things will fade. Friendship is the thing that lasts all the way to the end. And so friendship is the thing that sort of touches on the core of who we are as image bearers of God. Being made relational creatures. Designed to give ourselves to somebody else completely and for them to give themselves to us completely. And so if you want a wonderful marriage... The Bible says work on your friendship. If you want a wonderful marriage, work on your friendship. Now, that sort of begs the question, so what's this friendship, this oneness, this companionship with one another? Let me mention uh, three things. The first is this, moving towards a common vision. Moving towards a common vision. Writer C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves, says that a friendship can develop when two acquaintances come alongside of each other and they realize that they have the same common interest, that they're looking in the same direction, that they have a common insight with one another. Sort of the shoulder-to-shoulder imagery, standing shoulder-to-shoulder, looking out at the world and saying, we see things in a similar fashion. And we see that we're going in the same direction together. This is why soldiers who 
maybe come from different parts of the country are put together and they go to war with one another. And they have the same common goal. This is our vision. This is what we're going to accomplish. By the end of it, they're bound together, sometimes for the rest of their lives. Or people who go off on a mission trip together realize, I have actually something significantly in common with this person. Because we have the same goal, the building of the kingdom of God. And it's why two people who are Christians, who realize we're moving towards the same vision, that is the kingdom of God, we're moving towards the Lord Jesus together, now want to be joined with one another. It's also why Christians are only to marry other Christians. Because if you marry someone who is not a believer, then you're going in a different direction with them and your hearts are divided, your lives are divided, and your direction is divided. And what it's seeking to do is pull you apart as a couple. And so that's why God says that Christians ought to only be yoked to other Christians in marriage. And so as those who've left all behind and seeking to join together with their spouse, what we learn to do is to act in concert with one another. Like a symphony where the different individual members practice and practice and practice. Not just so they individually get it right, but so that they're joined together with the same goal and the same vision in the same way as everybody else in the symphony. So that their timing is right. Or you might think of a sports analogy of Players on a team seeking to do the same thing. Where we have the same common goal, same common vision with one another. And so we learn to act in concert rather than in our own individualness. And those who share a common vision eventually want to get closer and closer to each other. So it's not just a a moving towards a common vision, but secondly, it's sharing and keeping secrets. Intimacy. In other words, that I reveal who I am and you reveal who you are. That we get to know one another deeper and deeper and deeper. Sort of like peeling back the layers of an onion so that I understand your sense of humor. I understand your your health concerns. I understand your interests in life. I understand all the things that make you tick. And more and more, just as Adam and Eve were naked without shame, we stand before each other as husband and wife and we bear our souls with one another. We share secrets and we keep secrets. Self-disclosure. But you see, that only works if there's full acceptance of one another. You can't share secrets and keep secrets and have that sense of security unless you actually accept one another. If you were to take the time to write out a list of the quality traits of your spouse, right? All their interests, their background, the things that they enjoy doing, their personality, their, their quirks and their habits. If you were to take the time to write out a list, oftentimes we do that mentally. And we have three different categories. We have the category of, I like this. Then we have the category of, I can handle this. And then we have the category of, I despise this and I I wish this wasn't a part of their life. And so we mentally end up doing this and sort of weighing all these things on a scale of how much we like them and how much we don't like them. 
And that's not actually how a biblical friendship is supposed to work. Because a biblical friendship says, I'm going to take you as a whole person. Yes, there may be things about you that are sinful and things about you that I don't like. Things about you that, that grate on my nerves, but I'm going to take you as a whole person and I'm going to accept you as a whole person. After all, isn't that a picture of the Gospel of Jesus Christ? That the way in which He comes to His people, He doesn't say, now clean up your act, don't do the things I don't like you to do, and then I'll accept you. But it's just the opposite. He says, I take you as a whole person. And if anything, I'm going to make you into a more glorious person. Because you see, if, if we don't accept our spouses that way, then our spouse feels a sense of shame in our presence. Notice how Adam and Eve reacted when they were naked. After they sinned and they were naked, what did they do? They covered themselves up and they covered up the parts of their bodies that made them different. Things that made them different. Those were the things that they wanted to hide. And if you can't share and keep secrets in a safe environment, that's what you end up doing. You cover up the parts that are different. We started this in middle school, didn't we? Right? We don't want to dress differently or act differently or say th anything differently because we might stand out. We don't want to change in front of others in the locker room. Why? Because they might notice that there's something different about me. And if there's something different about me, then maybe I'll be rejected. But you see, a biblical picture of marriage is that I, I share myself and my sp spouse shares his or herself with me in an attitude of full acceptance. Real friendship is about accepting a person in total. It's not a matter of saying, I'll accept you if, but rather, I love you and I take it all. And so marriage is this oneness, this friendship is looking towards a common vision. It's sharing and keeping secrets. And then thirdly, it's a helpful presence. Friends help friends. They want to bless each other. It's not enough just to know facts about each other. It's not enough just for your spouse to know things about you. But rather, you want to bless them. You want to help them. You want to make their life better. You want to say to them, there's nothing that I wouldn't do for you. A number of months ago, we were talking about love. You remember that? And we said that J.I. Packer's definition of love is pretty good. It's the desire and the effort to make another person great. In other words, it's a, the desire and the effort to help someone else. To say, I want to help you be a better person. I want to be there for you at all times. And I want you to never go without my help. It means we show up for our spouse. It means we sacrifice for them. And what happens over time is we begin to build a track record of helping them, of sacrificing for them, so that they have a sense of confidence and assurance. Yes, he loves me. Yes, she loves me. Because she's proven it or he's proven it over and over to be trustworthy and dependable. And what that does is create an, an atmosphere in your marriage where you assume the best about each other. Right? Your spouse may be reacting in an emotional fashion today, but you assume the best because you know that over the long haul, they, they really want your best. They want to help you in every way. They want to do everything that they can to be at your side. 
And so you begin to assume the best about them rather than reacting out of anger or frustration at times. But also in terms of this sense of being helpful, it also has to do with the way that we, in which we speak to our spouse. Uh, Dr. Tim Keller speaks of how this, in this oneness, our spouse has power, greater power than anybody else on the earth, power to either bring benediction, blessing, or malediction, cursing. In other words, your spouse, because you're so joined with them, they're so close to you and you're so close to them, what they say matters more than anybody else. Matters more than your boss, matters more than your other friends, matters more than what your parents say. And so, becoming one flesh magnifies the power of words. Let me give you an illustration of this from the book Song of Solomon's. It's uh, Solomon. It's the, the Bible book that we rarely read because we're a little bit confused by it. Uh, it's so charged with romance and physical attraction, we just don't know what to do with it. But it's a picture of wisdom played out in marriage. And what happens here at the very first chapter is the beloved, the, 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 uh, the woman says to her lover, she says, I'm very dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons are angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. She's insecure, in other words, because she's been forced to live out in the fields and her skin has been damaged by the sun. And so she's saying to the one who loves her, don't look at me. There's something unpleasant about me. She feels insecure about herself. And you see what her lover ends up doing over the course of the book is convincing her, I love you, cherish you, you are beautiful to me. And that has a positive effect on her, a powerful effect on her, so that she begins to believe it. And that's the way in which we are with our spouse. We have power in our hands to bring blessing or to bring cursing. Because you see, over the course of everyone's life, they've been told things about themselves, good or bad. And that all builds up over time. And we have a view of ourselves and we have a view of God that's shaped by the verdicts of our lives. And it's when our spouse comes along and begins to say wonderful things to us that it begins to reshape how we think about ourselves and about our lives and even about God. It shapes how we think about our past, but it also shapes how we think about our present. Some of us may be a, a glass-half-empty kind of person, Right? We're always looking at things a little bit more skeptically than our spouse. But maybe the way in which our spouse speaks to us, affirming us, speaks to us about the promises of God that He will never leave us nor forsake us, makes us confident to go out into the world and, with an attitude that the glass is half full. What's God going to do today? What glorious things are going to happen? How is He going to work? And you see, it begins to reshape how we think about our present and even how we approach the future. God has made us for friendship. And especially in marriage, to be one 
with our spouse. And so the best thing that we can do for our marriage is to work on our friendship. And let me say, if these things aren't happening in your marriage, if you're not coming together in a common vision like this, to see Jesus and to love Him and know Him and be with Him and become like Him, if you're not sharing and keeping secrets with one another, if you're not helping each other by building each other up and being there with, for one another, then you don't have the kind of friendship that the Bible longs for you to have, that God wants you to have in your marriage. And that leads us to three challenges. And these really fall along the same lines of what we've just said. First challenge is having different visions of life. Different visions of life. You know, the Bible says that there's three categories for sin. One is original sin, that Adam sinned in the garden. And because of that, we're all guilty and we're all corrupt in sin. Secondly, because of Adam's corruption that's passed down to us, we now sin against other people. And then thirdly, we're all victims of sin. Now what that means is that we all come into marriage not as a blank slate, but as we say, we come with baggage. You know, you get home from the honeymoon and you're unpacking your bags and then over a time you realize there's some extra bags around here that I didn't realize we had on our honeymoon. And they're just waiting for somebody to unzip them. And over time, they do get unzipped and things begin to pop out. And our past begins to shape the way in which we approach our marriage. We're all the kind of people who are trying to cope with our past, negotiate with it, trying to live a way uh, of life that makes us satisfied in light of our past. And marriage becomes the context in which we try to meet our felt needs. Needs that weren't met before when we were growing up. Maybe you were the middle child. You didn't get enough attention from your parents. Maybe there was a sibling ahead of you. And that was the person who seemed to get all the awards, did everything right. And that person is the one who gets the accolades from mom and dad. And you not wanting to fail at anything because that would bring more scorn and shame upon you. Never really tried. And so you never excel because you were afraid to fail. And maybe because of that you went through a time of rebellion in life and you wanted to set your own identity apart from your family, apart from your uh, parents. And because of that, you did things that you're ashamed of. Things that you feel guilty about. And let's suppose your spouse is the kind of person that's that type A person, like your older brother or older sister, who realized that acceptance with mom and dad was getting good grades and performing at a high level. And so for that person, they're going to do everything that they can in their life to be driven to success. And you put those two kinds of people together. And what you end up with, one person who feels inadequate and insecure, guilty and ashamed, and the other person who says, I'm driven to succeed. I've got to do everything for myself. And all of a sudden, you've got two different visions of life that don't meet up. Sort of like if you're in the same solar system as your spouse, but you have two different centers of the solar system. Eventually, your orbits are going to crash into one another. And that's what happens when our past determines our vision of the future and it's out of sync with our spouse. Not only that, 
we can also have a selfish approach to sharing ourselves with our spouse, which can look like two opposite things. One, hiding from our spouse. Being walled off. Having that hard exterior shell of protection where I don't share anything because if I share anything, then I become vulnerable and my spouse actually has power over me because then they can wound me. And so I'm going to wall off my spouse. And as long as my spouse does his or her job, then I'm satisfied. As long as they keep up with their biblical calling in marriage, then fine. Or at least my expectations. And you see, that's not a biblical marriage, but a workable arrangement. And to the extent that you hide from your spouse, you don't have a friendship. Now, the other opposite extreme is that you try to get too much from your spouse. We're made to be completed by our spouse, but not ultimately. Only God can do that. And for some people, they look at their spouse and they say, nah, what I really want is for you to fill me up and complete me totally. And your spouse becomes an idol. And you see where the frustrations begin when they don't give you what you want. So you see, we can have a faulty sense of sharing ourselves and a selfish one. And finally, we can choose harm over help. The power for malediction rather than the power for benediction. Remember what Adam said when he saw Eve for the first time? Basically, wow, look who this is. You remember what he said after they sinned in the garden? He said to God, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. That woman over there, it used to be, that's bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Now it's, I'm going to distance myself from her. She's guilty. I didn't do anything wrong. Point your fingers at her. Do you see what happens? He's judging her and he's distancing himself from her to harm her out of self-protection. Sin makes us act out of anger and fear and selfishness. We can try to harm the other person. We can try to wound them all in an effort to gain the upper hand, to gain control and power over them. That way I can keep them in check, keep them down. And they can't harm me. And so the goal of communication becomes to punish, to get even, to embarrass, and ultimately to win. And the way that's often played out is one escalating arguments where things start out small, but before long you're louder and louder and louder. You bring up past faults to hurt the other person. Or maybe you invalidate them by saying you always do this wrong and you never do that right. And you see in that context, what you need is that atmosphere where you've been with your spouse and you have that common vision and you have sought to share everything with them and them share with you and you've built them up so that you stop that kind of escalation in its tracks and you assume the best. Or the other is the hide and seek. I'll get him with the silent treatment. Right? And the other person's frustrated. They keep pursuing and you, you keep running and hiding. 
Do you see how if we're not pursuing the kind of friendship that the Bible lays out for us, that it brings destruction in marriage? And you might say, wow, what's the hope then? Is there any hope for marriage? Yes. Because you see, there's another purpose for marriage we cannot talk about today. We'll take up next week. And it's transformation. It's holiness. God wants to use your marriage as an instrument in His hands. Because your marriage is in His hands. And He wants to use it so that you will be a sanctifying presence in your spouse's life and they will be a sanctifying presence in your life as well. So that all these patterns that begin to take over marriage eventually begin to fall away when we learn to be good friends the way that Jesus is a good friend to us. And what He wants for us now is to come to Him to seek His grace, not only for forgiveness, but also that He would break our hearts over the ways in which we've sought to fulfill ourselves in marriage. And so that our efforts would be to be filled up by Him so that we could be a good spouse, be a good friend to the One that we've pledged to love. And in a few minutes, we're going to come to His table and receive that kind of grace. Grace that makes us more and more like Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do come to You and we recognize how sin has distorted marriage and how You have designed it and how You've purposed for it to bring about joy and pleasure and satisfaction. And that what we need most is to work on our marriage by working on our friendship. To be the kind of friend that Jesus is to us by His grace and by His power. And we pray this for His sake. Amen.